0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University. Today I'm chatting with my colleague, Dr. Maria Quintana, from Sac State's Department of History, about her Contracting Freedom, Race, Empire, and U.S. Guest Worker programs out with the University of Pennsylvania in 2022. Professor Quintana earned her Ph.D. at the University of Washington and taught at San Francisco State's famous Department of Ethnic Studies before joining us here at Sac State. And boy, are we delighted to have her. Uh, Dr. Quintana, Maria, if I may, welcome to New Books in History.
1: Thank you. I am so excited to be here today speaking with you, and I just wanted to say thank you for featuring my book.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I'm excited to talk to you Um, as as your book intersects with so many of my interests that I work on in French colonial history and Southeast Asian history, topics such as race, labor, the nature of imperial control. Uh, But first, I want to hear about how you as an individual came to your research interests. Can you tell us um, both what drew you to history in general? But also, um, what drew you to working on the um, the history of the Procero program?
1: Okay, sure, yes. Um, So the book came out of my work as a graduate student when I was interested in the history and formation of Latinx laboring communities in California, where I grew up. Uh, Being half Chicana, I was interested in my family's history as the working backbone of the state as well as in the challenge of fighting against the social injustices faced by poorly paid manual and service work that I witnessed firsthand with my family. Uh, So I grew up in a predominantly Latino-Latina community or neighborhood called La Colonia in Anaheim, California, near Stanton, where many service and construction workers lived. It was also um, formerly All Orange Groves, owned by the cooperative that was Sunkist Farms. um, And they hired bracero workers. So it's interesting growing up in a place that was historically a place that hired braceros. Um, now there are day labor sites at the end of my street where I grew up. And I, um, I saw those as well uh, growing up like a Vista paint store at the end of the street where people would stay um, or wait to get picked up for work. Um, and that was what drew me to this topic because I was really interested in the history of day labor in California. But that quickly transformed as I realized that this dependency on day labor from Latin America came from the Bracero program. And um, I also noticed at other day labor sites in Orange County that some looked remarkably like the slave labor auction blocks that I learned about in teaching courses on American slavery in grad school. And I was wondering if there was perhaps a connection between what I was seeing in the contemporary moment in my neighborhood and the history of slavery in the United States. Um, So in other words, I began asking, what are the roots of this labor and how do we draw those colonial connections? Um, But in terms of my interest in history, I think it was really my um, mentors at community college uh, who got me interested. I quickly um, jumped on the importance of history and to understanding how we got here, where we are today. So in terms of the Bracero program, um, you know, I found that much of the dependency um, on Mexican labor, and now Central American labor in California today, emerged from the history of foreign guest worker programs, um, particularly the Brasero program. And you know, as I started my research on the Brasero program in the archives, I found, interestingly enough, that many of the scholars and activists, you know, they were critical. Of the bracero program, of course, because it what, what they perceived it they perceived it as exploitative, and they called it out as a form of slave labor. And of course, I agreed with that, but I also found that criticism of the labor program was deeply problematic for many reasons. Um, one of them was that you know they were constructing braceros as slave labor, which made them you know sort of exist completely outside of liberal modernity, right? But then I also thought that constructing them as slaves had something to do with the construction of freedom itself. Um, hence the title of my book, Contracting Freedom, uh, which implies the state both literally giving workers um, contracts that promise their rights, but also contracting um, or constricting workers' rights and freedoms. So there's a double meaning. Um, but it, you know, I was really interested in, in the colonial origins of the Bracero program, not just in how it was, quote, just like. The American institution of slavery, or just like European colonialism elsewhere, but how it was deeply imbricated in the history of enslavement and colonialism in the United States and the world. Um, so, you know, I I wanted to move past the paradigm that this was just a form of imported colonialism. Um, so, yeah, yeah the, it's it, yeah. it's
0: not just like, but has these parallels and these similarities and. I mean, I remember as an undergraduate in the eighties in um uh, Latin American studies class, um, seeing the, uh, the the film El Norte. Um I mean, it was it was it's just like early eighties and sort of the classic, like, you know, um realist cinema about um a family um coming I, are they are they in Central America or, or Mexico? Mexico, Mexico yes. and and I, what stuck with me in the beginning of that film is, i don't know if it's his father or mother who tells the main character um you, you know you're more than just a pair of strong arms and after this totally horrifying journey to the north he's in one of these day labor markets um you know and it, it's not a home depot at that time but the equivalent right you know trying to trying to hustle to get to get hired for the day and he says i am strong arms and i don't know if that's the, the last words of the film i haven't seen it in decades but like that stuck with me and and, like, as an undergraduate, I was like, "Whoa, there are these really intense parallels with the dehumanizing uh, aspect of this kind of labor and and obviously racialized in this context. but we'll we'll get to that. So so this started with your your graduate work at University of Washington. and um, and I love that the uh, that the spark was lit at the community college level, um yay to the California community college system. I mean, life-changing, right? Um, But where did you do your research for the project? Like, Where where were your archival collections?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, I kind of went all over the place to do this research because the book is very broad. It not only focuses on the Rosero program, but several other labor programs as well, including the labor programs in the Caribbean that emerged at the same time. So I started at the U.S. National Archives and Records Administration in D.C. And then I went to Mexico City to El Archivo General de la Nación and then as well to the Ernesto Galarza Papers at Stanford um, and then went back to D.C. for the Organization of American States, formerly the Pan American Union in D.C. Um, And then, of course, did my own research, um, you know, Looking through U.S. congressional hearings, documents, uh, government publications and correspondence, newspapers, um, as well as um, oral histories from Braceros. I I don't know if you've heard heard of this website, uh, braceroarchive.org, but they have over 5,000 oral history interviews with former Braceros. So if you're interested in getting a start, (laughs) learning more about the program, that's a great way to do it. And then also um, El Archivo General de Puerto Rico. As well as the Center for Puerto Rican Studies at Hunter College, the Office of the Government of Puerto Rico in the United States, um, and that was in New York. So, um, so the United States records in um, in New York actually houses the Office of the Government of Puerto Rico documents. Um, so, the documents that manage so the people who manage the Puerto Rican labor program house basically their archival um, information is housed there.
0: So right. No, you didn't get down to the um, uh, former um, British uh, colonial possessions?
1: No, I did not because, you know, what happened was I actually found a lot of information on it in the at the U.S. National Archives. Yeah. So, I, and I was able to piece together, as this was only one chapter of the book, I was able to piece together quite a lot because what was interesting about the British to West Indies programs is that afro Caribbean laborers were literate and wrote a ton of letters. Oh, okay. They were also radicalized and so you know they had an opinion and they they you know the archives are filled with their letters. And Important so I'm their letters yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Oh, that's okay. fascinating. Um my yeah. my mentor Tyler Stovall, um he did a project on uh, uh I think it was Tunisian laborers in uh, in France during World War 1. And I, I mean, it was it was on a, n- a number of uh, laborers from the French colonies, but um, in, in particular, he had a really great presentation on um, letters from Tunisians back home and the way in which the colonial authorities were watching them like a hawk. And he he in in his piece, he got to reflect on um, how that's useful for we the the historians um, to have someone's you know personal business. Sometimes there were love letters and things being spied on by the state and the record that leaves for us. So, and, and also yes. as, as someone who does colonial history and in world history, I'm just so delighted for someone you know who we hired <laughs> at, hired as an Americanist, um, yeah, <laughs> that, to be doing this international research. I mean, it is it is yeah. like I, you know, we we have to we have to burst through these artificial paradigms of the nation state, for, absolutely, or scholarly endeavors. So. And
1: that's the thing; these these labor programs. I mean, they were co constituted by the same government officials. So, you know, it's interesting how we tend to disaggregate them when they weren't imagined as separate by the people that designed them. So, uh, you know, I think again, we kind of artificially enforce these borders around nation states that aren't even really there, in some ways, especially when it comes to guest worker programs. So,
0: absolutely. Uh, Yeah. So. Could you give us a brief history of the Bracero program and, and the related programs? Um, I, I think many listeners are now familiar with um, the U.S. use of Mexican labor, um, but could you also discuss the use of laborers from Puerto Rico, from the uh, British West Indies, and you also engage Japanese American uh, workers in this in this project?
1: Yes. Yes. There's a lot going on. So the history of the Bracero program. So the Br- Bracero program is basically a series of laws and diplomatic agreements between the United States and Mexico from August 4th, 1942, to December 1st, 1964, to import guest workers from Mexico to work in the U.S. on farms. Uh, so it started during World War II as a result of a perceived labor shortage, but then it continued past the war till the, the night till 1964. Uh, braceros were quote unquote field hands, as you were mentioning, strong arms, right? Because they worked with their brazos arms to harvest crops. Um, so they were called braceros. Um, and it led to between four to five million Mexican men migrating to the United States to work in the agricultural fields of the United States. I mean, it was just pretty incredible in terms of its size. The second largest labor program, the program with Puerto Rico emerged about, well, there was a small one that that came out and then they canceled it for a moment and then they brought it back in 1948. So 1942 was the Bracero program. Then they started bringing in uh, Puerto Rican farm laborers as contract laborers in full force by 1948. And that labor program uh, brought in about 200,000 Puerto Ricans. Um, Well, the numbers are kind of all over the place, but between two and 300,000. And so it was the second largest labor program. And then you also see um, one year after the start of the Bracero program, the US uh, starting to have these discussions with the British colonial government um, over importing uh, workers from the British West Indies to work um, temporarily in labor contracts in the United States on farms, uh, mostly on the Atlantic seaboard, but also in Florida.
0: So, and then and then uh, Japanese laborers. Oh yes, Japanese tied to (laughs) the history of internment.
1: Yes, absolutely. So another chapter, and so the way that the book is constructed is each chapter uh, focuses on one of these labor programs, and so a lot of people aren't aware of this, but um, during Japanese American incarceration uh, during World War II, the U.S. began to actually also offer. incarcerated Japanese Americans contracts to work in the sugar beet fields of the Midwest. Uh, So if they wanted to, they could become farm laborers on temporary leave from concentration camps. And so uh, one chapter of the book goes over that program to show that what happened was much like what happened with the Bracero program, but also this labor program with Japanese American uh, inmates um, was co-constituted with the Bracero program. So as officials are talking about, you know, how to create a bracero program before it even starts, they're also talking about before Japanese-American removal happens, they start to talk about how we can, you know, best make use of this labor on both sides, right? So if if we're going to remove all of these Japanese-Americans from the West Coast, then we're going to need labor to replace them. So how are we going to get that labor? So They're already imagining this months before I and mean, when they know that the, that it's going to happen, but um, that both problems are going to happen, but they're talking about them together. and in ways uh, that really emphasize their desire to protect the people who are being moved, right? Mm-hmm. so to protect Mexicans, to protect Japanese Americans. So it's very interesting the logic of freedom that they engage, right? the, the logic around rights and contracts to say that these aren't abusive programs that this isn't a prison camp that they're going to be housing Japanese Americans in but these are actually good for Japanese Americans these programs are good for Mexicans um and for example will prevent Japanese Americans from becoming demoralized being stuck in what is essentially a concentration camp
0: right right yeah that um you know I'm 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 from Hawaii and been living in California and and was Knew very well um, the history of um, incarceration and, and the West Coast, but I was totally oblivious to the the Midwest history. And um, um, I, I think um, George Takei's uh, graphic memoir engages that because they were they were interned in maybe maybe in the South, maybe in um, in Arkansas, uh, but also um, uh, I did an interview with Michael Foley about his his book on Johnny Cash's politics, which are Complicated and confusing, you know, they're 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 very complex, um, but very interesting in like the different influences. And he grew up near uh, a site of uh, incarcerated Japanese Americans, and um, Michael Foley makes an argument that that had, you know, gave him a level, gave a level of complexity to his really complicated issues around race and and social justice um but yeah. I dig- digress um Interesting. dive back again looks like not dialogue for yeah. that one fully is, um citizen cash um but getting back to your book which is why we're talking um how do you want contracting freedom to be an intervention in the existing historiography um you know what do you, what do you want to bring uh, to the analysis um with the topics such as your theorization of Empire um and and the you know you 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 um, argue that they're well you you sort you work with some of the colonial origins of the World War II uh, labor project, but it's not exactly that. So, could you un- unpack some of these things, the engagement with empire and colonialism, and in your contribution to the field?
1: Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So it was interesting to me as a student of. Uh, U.S. empire, uh, that very few historians had addressed empire in their analyses of the Bracero program. And that was something that I wanted to address from the beginning. Um, What's really interesting to me is that when you place the labor programs side by side, you begin to see that they were rooted in colonialism. For one, Puerto Rico has long been a colony of the United States, Right. (laughs) And the British West Indies were the island territorial possessions of England when the programs began up until the 1960s, when those islands, you know, fought for and gained independence. So while it was easy to sideline colonialism with the Bracetto program, in some cases, I think, because it was based on an agreement between two sovereign governments, the U.S. and Mexico, The Caribbean labor programs were based on an agreement between the U.S. government and island colonial possessions. So Puerto Ricans and Afro-Caribbeans from the British West Indies, including Barbados, the Bahamas, Jamaica, were thus literally colonial labor. So how is it that Mexicans were not, right? Uh, Especially when U.S. government officials imagined these programs together and at the same time. Um so what really surprised me and what I asked at the time was to how can we not talk about empire when we discuss the Bracero program. And that is the shift that I would like to see in the historiography um in terms of you know theorizing empire and really talking about it. Um does that answer your question? Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um
1: there's you know, there's another chapter and and this might lead into your next question where, you know, I show how it also um originates in the history of slavery.
0: That, this, this, so so maybe some, y'all know how to somehow you knew what I was gonna ask you, <laughs> yeah. cause, cause you, I mean, and you. This is in the larger history of coerced labor. And clearly um the American history of slavery is so important here. So so how, how do these so called guest worker programs fit in? To that history of coerced labor, yes.
1: Yeah, so, well, so as I was saying in chapter one of the book, I write a genealogy of the temporary labor contract, and trace its origins to African slavery under European colonialism. Uh, I demonstrate in that chapter how the labor contract emerged during nineteenth-century efforts to abolish slavery. As a means to quote create a to quote create a quote excuse me voluntary supply or free supply of wage labor that would be a potential solution to ending enslaved labor the end of enslaved labor. However, the you know it was the guise of freedom that was productive for labor coercion I argue because it made coercion less visible but also author- authorized the expansion of state power over workers through the contract who are now free wage laborers. I also focus on the ways that they perceived, quote, free will of the worker to sign a contract of their own volition, in fact, masked the fact that people from Mexico, Puerto Rico, or the British West Indies had few other options for gainful employment um, other than to sign a labor contract and work in the United States. So while guest workers signed temporary labor contracts, that indicated their you know, voluntary passage as free wage laborers, not slave laborers, what they experienced was quite the opposite. And their movements were controlled. They had little choice over um, the type of labor that they were performing. They often didn't have many job opportunities, as I was saying, from where they came from due to a history of U.S. imperial interventions in their sending countries, uh, oftentimes. So how much choice was there for workers? Um, so I think that you know what really is important is we focus on that element right this that this this is about labor coercion and what reveals that even more both the coercion and the violence of the labor programs is that japanese american inmates were employed alongside braceros right after being forcibly removed from their homes they were given the option to sign temporary contracts on leave from concentration camps so what is your choice if your only other option is to remain in a prison, right? Um, so my chapter on the co-constitution of the Bracero program and Japanese-American incarceration during World War II further unmasks that coercion uh, to show that it still manifests um, you know, during and after World War II in the labor programs and then even up till today with the continuation of guest worker programs.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I mean, as, as you're speaking, so many little uh, lights are going off in my head. It's like, that sounds so much like the French labor contracts that they were pushing on peasants in northern Vietnam after the French had completely disrupted the economy of northern Vietnam and they were sending them down to these new rubber plantations in the south of Vietnam or off to sugar plantations in the Pacific. And, and sure, they signed a contract. Do they understand the contract? Do they, what yeah. other options do they have? It really makes a mockery of, um, uh, well, uh, of, of the contract uh, and of that, that, that aspect of modernity.
1: Oh, absolutely. And the thing that, I found really interesting, too, is how the workers are responding to this, uh, because yeah. each chapter, I also try to uncover the perspectives of these workers and how they reacted to these debates over contract freedom, you know, propagated by all governments involved in any case. So they are offered a set of rights and wage guarantees through the labor contracts, right? But what ends up happening is they're, they all realize that the governments are doing very little to protect them. And so they protested the lack of enforcement of the contract guarantees and the failure of the state to protect their rights. Um, maybe they couldn't, didn't understand the contract or didn't read it. Most of them did or had someone else read it to them. But often, so because they knew what it stood for and that it wasn't being fulfilled, they often protested the lack of freedom that resulted from the programs through strikes, work stoppages, ripping the contracts up in the fields like mm-hmm. saying like this is meaningless right or they would just jump the contracts they basically choosing to go illegal so that a quote unquote illegal right to choose their own employers and by you know pointing to the problem of national borders and citizenship to claim their own vision of freedom so I think that adds up yeah uh, really showing that you know liberal state governance couldn't really solve the problems that workers faced uh but It was, in fact, part of the problem, you know, that as workers are looking to the state to sort of fix this, you know, it just led to more government expansion and authority over workers, right? And as they're going illegal or jumping the contracts, it just leads to further justification to, for example, expand the border patrol so that they could track down those workers who had gone illegal, right, and send them back so that they could then come in legally. Um, So, you know, the problem of, you know, the government regulation of freedoms and rights is really, um, you know, freedoms and rights given through the contract really leads to these processes of erasure. Um, Because what's happening underneath it all is workers are continuously becoming subject to state power and empire, Um, even into the contemporary era, right? And to coercion. <laughs> yeah. In other words, you know, it was the liberalism of the contract that reproduced violence and empire.
0: Yeah, so, a- absolutely. Well, Hey, once again, I mean this. Another thing I want to ask you about um, is in Contracting Freedom, you show how these labor programs are produced by definitions of liberalism. So, what do you what are you arguing uh, there in regards to liberalism and contract labor and in the, in the guest worker program?
1: Yes, so uh, part of what I'm trying to show in Contracting Freedom is how the very notion of contract rights is grounded in classical liberalism. That is. The set of post-Enlightenment ideas and ideals committed to universal political rights and self-determination sanctified by the nation state through citizenship and rights in the states, right, that we see, for example, in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Um, The very notion of contract rights is grounded in liberalism and in this idea that government can be responsible for people's rights in the first place which allowed for this expansion of state power over workers through the contract. So the I also wanted to mention the liberalism I'm referring to is not static, uh, meaning it's, it changes over time, um, especially with regards to the labor program. So the New Deal liberalism and the racial liberalism of this time period from the 1940s to the 1960s really fueled a particular kind of politics that celebrated these labor programs with Mexico and the British West Indies and with Puerto Rico as marking a new global age of freedom. So, um, you know, it's precisely that shift in liberalism that allows for this to happen um, and really an investigation into the ways uh, liberalism or, you know, this idea of freedom um, through rights legitimize and organize these guest worker programs reveals that the abuses resulting from them were not about government corruption are about government failure to fulfill the, quote, law, um, nor were they about governments failing to do what they otherwise should be doing. Rather, the abuses of the labor program were in part a result of the liberal implementation and the policies of the programs as New Deal officials and labor advocates sought to expand state governance to benefit workers. Um, so in other words, the you know, these exploitative realities of the labor programs, the wage theft, the injury, the displacement, um, isolation, the poor living conditions, these were not a government failure, but really a product of liberalism by which capitalism and state power became justified. Um, So what I argue is that it was the liberalism of the labor programs that allowed for the erasure of the coercion involved, which also, of course, legitimized the expansion of state power and also empire. And here, when I say empire, I'm referring to, you know, the the original definition of English language, which is that which is subject to imperial rule. So as we saw from the state power exercised over managing migrant labor, as well as the expansion of the border patrol resulting from the Roseno program, or that's what I talk about in the book anyway, this was an instance in the expansion of U.S. empire of US state power over people's lives, making people subject to state authority or imperial rule. Um, And this didn't just happen in the United States. I think what's important about this argument about liberalism that I'm making is that when the US allowed Puerto Rico to elect its own officials in the 1940s, they quickly developed a nationalist government in Puerto Rico known as the PPD, the Popular Democratic Party. Uh, to govern Puerto Rico in its progress towards modernization and independence. Um, And they were basically New Dealers uh, adapting what happened with the Bracero program in a Puerto Rican context. And so they're engaging an empire as well as they're expanding their own authority and state power over workers, which is its own form of imperialism. In Mexico as well, um, Mexican officials developed their own form of state power or liberalism. Overworkers is so so what I'm speaking to in the book is about these multiple overlapping imperialisms that happen as a result of each state's project in liberalism, which they all share parallels in any case. This is in, in any case about New Deal liberalism and racial liberalism. Um, but you know, so so the book is trying to get at the complexity of imperialism and how states often take on imperial projects that might be informed by U.S. empire or work to facilitate U.S. empire, but are their own national projects also based on the philosophy of liberalism or rights in the state. So we see it's not just about U.S. empire, but about how liberalism and empire are intertwined.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a really great contribution. And again, I want my colleagues who work on, in French imperialism and British imperialism, I mean, we, we, we need to be reading the, uh, across these uh, these geographic lines that could really inform some of the discussions going on um, in uh, early 20th century um, uh, European colonial studies. So um, obviously the guest worker programs are deeply tied to the history of race and racism. Uh, what does the treatment of Mexican, West Indian, Afro-Caribbean? Puerto Rican and Japanese guest workers teach us about race as a historical concept and as a variable.
1: Yes. So, um, first, the very idea that the contracts were temporary assumed that the workers would not stay in the United States to undercut,
0: quote, free white American workers. Yeah. It was not so, a pathway to becoming American, right? Right. Exactly. Because, so you, the- because you, <laughs> you are other.
1: Exactly. And so the programs really function to maintain white supremacy automatically. Um, we also now know that as historians, um, non-white farmworkers have a long history of being exploited in this country as second-class citizens. So um, you know, beneath this language of state protection and rights with these labor programs was the historical disdain for Asians, Mexicans, and others you know, that has characterized immigrant treatment in the United States Just the first entry of Chinese migrants for work in gold mines and agricultural fields and on the Transcontinental Railroad, for example. Um, So as I detail in chapter one, uh, both state and federal governments in collusion with growers and labor activists continuously turned Chinese and other Asian migrants into a permanent force of cheap and temporary migrant labor through a series of exclusionary immigration acts and when these legislative actions shrank the number of Japanese farm workers in the 1920s and 1930s, growers began to look to Mexico for an abundant supply of labor to augment the Japanese labor supply. And then, you know, agricultural employers soon realized that social, political, and economic forces combined to basically make Mexicans as powerless as the Chinese had been a generation before. So they start to show a preference for Mexican farm workers. Um, and then, you know, they created these Farm Bureau federations in 1919, 1920, 19, and, and began to lobby in Washington to prevent, for example, the application of the Immigration Act of 1924 to Mexicans, so that they could avail themselves of this large pool of Mexican labor that could be deported easily. And that, you know, this flexible Mexican labor supply was um, continuously, um, you know, resupplied by new undocumented Mexican migrant labor through a process of making Mexican migrants quote unquote illegal. Uh, so for nearly, you know, a century prior to Pearl Harbor, World War II, local white vigilantes vigilantes had built a foundation of racist ideologies about Asians and Mexicans in the Southwest in particular, um, through social isolation, through overt and covert racial discrimination, through racial violence, and you know, a series of exclusionary policies and acts um that culminated in the incarceration of, for example, Japanese American citizens in 1942. So really race had everything to do with these programs. And you know, it is precisely because of the racialization of Mexicans, of Puerto Ricans, Afro-Caribbeans, and Japanese Americans as ideal unskilled farm laborers or racialized quote, stoop labor uh, by the nineteen forties, that they were recruited for farm labor in the first place. So
0: was there a different um, treatment of uh, these groups by racial category?
1: Uh, you know, um, they weren't, I don't think they were treated differently. I think mm. they experienced what I found across the board was their experiences were quite similar in Listener. terms of racism and discrimination. But um, oftentimes, I mean, I, I get this question a lot about whether they had been employed on the field together and whether they started mm. to take collective action. Against growers who mistreated them, and what I found was growers were actually quite good at segregating the workers. So what they would do is maybe they would hire Jamaicans and Mexicans right alongside each other in Arizona, on occasion, uh, but they would employ them in separate fields. So these workers would never see each other, and then you had the language barrier as well,
0: mm-hmm. which
1: did not facilitate you know cross um, labor conversations about how to <laughs> step up against. Growers, so it it was very complex. I mean, in terms of what ended up happening, so they were racialized, they were segregated, um, and you know there wasn't often opportunities for them to have you know collaborations because of that.
0: Right. It it makes me think of the the history of the um, Filipino agricultural laborers in California and Delano, and um, the, the the historical argument that they. They brought with them some radical organization uh, from the from the Philippines. Um, was was that a was that a a, what a rare moment of sort of cross pollinization uh, across different? Uh, uh,
1: that Filipinos? no, I that was a unique situation because what ended up happening was actually Filipinos were also recruited for their own farm labor program that I don't get to go into a lot of detail uh-huh. on. You know, by the nineteen fifties, but um, but no, what you see happening is because of you know the need for more workers. You know, the U.S. Uh, turns to recruiting Filipinos to work in the agricultural fields of California, and so you know you see a large and there's all there's been a, you know history of farm worker Filipinos who are farm workers in California, and so. They start to um, work in the fields, and because they're radicalized, yes, they start to form their own labor organization called the AWOC. Um, and that organization, AWOC, is the one that Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta came across when they started uh, becoming interested in organizing farm workers as part, which, and so they they joined with the AWOC, the Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee, uh, which is a Filipino-led organization and formed the ufw and so that that connection that we see there um it doesn't didn't happen in other any other cases that i've seen and in fact interestingly enough because jamaicans are coming and politicized and radicalized because the labor unrest in the british west indies um, uh, they when they for example landed in arizona uh working alongside mexicans in the fields uh they could not believe how they were being treated. They were extremely, extremely upset. And the U.S. was forced to get them out of there as quickly as possible because they protested. Um, But, you know, it was it was one of those situations where, you know, there one work one class of workers is pinned against another. Right. And there could have been some collaboration, but because of the radicalization of these workers, it was like they realized right away. Growers realized that in order to maintain this docile, vulnerable labor force, that they couldn't let the radical ones come in, right? And they right. could to prevent this, you know, cross fertilization of values, right? Of 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 um, of resistance.
0: Oh, that, that's so fascinating, it just opens up so many windows into these moments of global radicalization and uh, mm-hmm. exchange. Oh, and this is, again, I, I I hope that this book is read very widely uh, around um, geographic specializations in the field. Um, was there anything that, supr- yeah. Yeah, anything that surprised you in your research? Um, I, I'm going to admit my complete ignorance of the role of British West Indian laborers, um, and I, I'm mm-hmm. curious if that's a widely discussed um, uh, aspect of this history, but but again, was there anything that surprised you in your research?
1: Ah, uh, good question. So, so there has been research on the British West Indies labor programs. One of them is on the Jamaican guest worker program, um, and it's called No Man's Land by Cindy Hajamovich, and that one was very influential for me in writing this book. Um, uh, but you know, there aren't many on the topic. But what I think surprised me the most um, is the sheer congruencies in the labor programs and the ways that all government involved legitimized imported workers to the United States, you know, through this logic of liberalism. So every time I went to a new archive, I started to see the same pattern. And it was like a light bulb going off in my mind each time. Um, and I remember thinking, why has this not been noticed before? You know, that that feeling of what is good like This is so obvious, right? And I think this speaks to the importance of doing that comparative history you're talking about and, um, you know, really avoiding the tendency to just aggregate from each other the very similar and shared experiences of different racialized groups and workers in the United States. Um, The reality was that Japanese-American incarceration was not imagined separately from the Bracero program, right, for example. And all these labor programs were created by the same government officials on the U.S. side, right, or at least by officials who were in conversation with one another, uh, such that the programs were never imagined as separate by their architects, as I've been saying, and were, you know, co-constituted. What also surprised me was the importance of the New Deal in creating the Bracero program, not one historian uh, has addressed this context in the study of the Bracero program, but this was really about state-managed labor mobility mm-hmm. and the creation of government agencies to manage labor, which is what the New Deal was all about. So it surprised me that the connection had not already been made on such a well-explored topic.
0: Yeah. That's that's fascinating. It, it does sound like a very New Deal kind of solution. Mm -hmm. Um, So what has been the legacy of these guest worker programs for the United States?
1: Well, um, you know, as I mentioned, guest worker programs have not gone away or won. The Bracero program ended in 1964, uh, but the U.S. government has established new labor programs and continued to, right afterwards, uh, created a new Mexican labor importation program. Uh, So what goes on today with guest worker programs is really a continuation of the consequences of a 300-year history of slavery and contract labor. But the modern explanation for guest worker programs frames them as an adequate solution to undocumented labor, uh, which is in and of itself a product of the 1940s and 1950s efforts in the United States to protect worker freedoms. But then also control and coerce migrant farm workers, making them targets of racialized state violence. So um, you know this is really important because you know we I think we continue today to believe that the rights provided in the labor contract uh, guest worker contracts, which really have not changed much since the World War II labor programs, will somehow protect workers from exploitation. That guest worker labor contracts are somehow better than, quote, unsanctioned immigration and can be fixed through government regulation. And as we've seen in the immigration reform debates over the contemporary, quote, immigration crisis, in the United States that the conversation still focuses on preventing undocumented immigration and then offering guest workers as a status solution and a means to provide a legal pathway to work in the United States that will presumably protect migrant workers. But I argue, you know, it's, it's precisely that illusion of legality and protection that authorizes and also erases the continued racialization and inequality these workers face as well as the violence and coercion that results. And that is why I argue in the book that we can no longer look to the state regulation of contract labor programs as a viable solution for migrant workers. Um, I mean, absolutely, yes, improving current policy, creating more inclusive labor and social policies and laws for farm workers, guest workers, and other low-wage workers is absolutely necessary. Uh, But what I'm arguing is that policy changes that are based in, the nation state you know nation oriented conceptualization of rights decide who is deserving and who is not which are race based decisions that often result in unintended consequences so the question then becomes can we imagine a borderless world right that would not racialize workers as outside of the nation and outside of citizenship that would not make them subject to state power and empire um You know, I I think what I importantly show in the book is that workers have fought to create a borderless imaginary sin fronteras, without borders. And today that involves not just paths to citizenship in the United States, but really uh, striving to imagine a world in which the concept of national borders are really no longer essential tools of governance, deciding who is deserving of rights, which really just re-entrenches now the national security state.
0: And. And what do you want um, the legacy of this book to be? What do you want the legacy of contracting freedom, race, empire, and U.S. guest workers, guest worker programs to be as as a contribution to the the field uh, or inspiration for future scholars? I mean, with within the within the discipline of history, what do, what do you want this legacy of this book to be?
1: Great. Well, I, you know, I really hope that the book inspires future scholars to study these labor programs. Um, I'd like to see the Bracero program become a cottage industry in history books, uh, much like the institution of American slavery has been. Uh, I'd also like to see um, books, uh, see the book, my book, really inspire future scholars to write more comparative histories. Um, you know, compared to colonial histories and also histories of different ethnic and racial groups that demonstrate our shared affinities towards a more collective ethnic studies across all identity groups. Um, I'd also like to see a broader focus in Latinx studies on the impact these labor programs have had in the formation of Latinx communities in the United States, particularly Puerto Rican and Mexican communities. So um, also... Um, You know, I really hope that the book speaks to farm worker and labor activists and awakens an urge to large scale action in the United States against the contemporary H2A farm labor programs to really expose them, as well as the injustice and dehumanization that guest workers often face even today as a result. So,
0: warm. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, so you've been really generous with your time. Uh, but I've got two more questions before I let you go. These are the the standard new books debriefing questions. Um, first, can you suggest two books for the audience to read?
1: Yes. So, well, I would be remiss if I didn't mention it, but my mentor and advisor, at <laughs> UW, now a colleague, Moon Ho Chang, recently published a book called Menace to Empire, Anti-Colonial Solidarities and Trans Pacific Origins of the US security state. And I'm just finishing it up now, uh, but it's really on the colonial origins of anti-Asian racism. So oh. if anyone's interested in that topic, I really enjoyed that book.
0: I am. <laughs> I mean, I'm really excited <laughs> yes. about that. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, what was yeah. What was the title?
1: Uh, Menace to Empire. Menace to Empire. Anti-Colonial Solidarities and the Trans-Pacific Origins of the U.S. Security State. And then um, I would also recommend Jessica Ortaz's recent book titled The Shadow of El Centro, A History of Migrant Incarceration and Solidarity. um, That shows how uh, the U.S. detention system was built to extract labor, to discipline, and to control migration. So another
0: excellent book. Great. Thank you. Um and finally, and, and just in full disclosure, I'm not on the RTP committee, so speak freely. Um, what what are you working on now, and, and what can we hope to see from you next?
1: Um, You know, I there's a couple of different things that I'm working on, but there there's this um, collection of journals that I found at the National Archives that I have not been able to touch, and the book became so expansive that I didn't have a chance to conclude this as a chapter, but um, at the start of the Bahamian labor program in 1943, the U.S. government originally allowed women to migrate to the United States as temporary contract workers on the farm fields of in the farm fields of Florida. So, what's interesting is, um, you know, most of these labor programs are oriented towards only bringing in men and and there that that is one of the specific uh policies is that only men are allowed to migrate to, to sign contracts so so originally they experimented with this and allowed women to come in uh, but when i was doing research for the book i found a series of you know these nurses journals uh, that were they were basically providing healthcare to farm workers in florida and began to impo- impose abortions on uh women bahamian women who are working in the fields um you know, and what ended up happening is, you know, there were these doctors involved, and a lot of it is very eugenicist. But um, Bahamian women were then prohibited from signing contracts within a year, and they refused to allow women or families come in. As a result, because of these racist concerns that they would have children in the United States that could potentially be U.S. citizens, so
0: there's an yeah, article the, 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 yeah. so-called, the so-called anchor baby, right?
1: Right. <laughs> yes, yeah. that racial. Yeah, that, term yeah so that's that's kind of uh one um one thing i'd like to be working on probably maybe even
0: over this summer that, uh that, because that's so fantastic and i and, and i yeah. I realized that as we get to the end of this interview i didn't ask you one thing about gender yeah i know well yeah and and, and, <laughs> see, and, and you know I, I i really see that shortcoming now and and um mm-hmm. because the the disc this is so about the male workers and that is assumed as the default and um I, I, <laughs>
1: Another I, racial I
0: component, right? Another yeah, racial yeah, component. Absolutely. And, I, and I recognize my shortcoming in my thinking on that. So that would be, I would love to see that. That's a fantastic piece of research.
1: Thanks. Yeah, no, just one thing I needed to tie up a loose end on because I realized that shortcoming in the book. And I definitely want to, um, add, to add that element oh, to yeah. show how I'm thinking about this.
0: Fantastic. Well, um, Dr. Maria Quintana, Thank you so much for chatting with me uh, uh, today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Well,
1: thank you for having me. I appreciate you taking the time to talk about the book with me.
0: Thanks. Great, so this has been a conversation with Professor Maria Quintana of California State University, Sacramento, about her book, Contracting Freedom, Race, Empire, and U.S. Guest Worker Programs, out with the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2022. I'm Michael Van, also of Sacramento State, And this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.